You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Okay, we're going to go ahead and uh, get started. Just start talking. Lanny says to just start talking, so I'm going to go ahead. Good morning, everybody. It's good to have you here at the Kootenai Community Church for our Sunday school, adult Sunday school, but youth or children are welcome as well. Um, I'm really grateful for the... I know what a difficulty it is for some of you to make it here this early in the morning, but I'm very thankful for your supporting the Sunday school class. For the last uh, short period, Cornell and I have been uh, exchanging our time at Sunday school, and Cornell, of course, is going through the book of Corinthians. And I have started in the book of Philippians. So if you would turn there, we'll resume uh, where we left off last time. But let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you this morning for your love and your grace for us each day. We thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who provided the, who was the propitiation, the satisfaction, uh, payment for sin for all those who place their faith in Him for forgiveness of sin and eternal life. We just give You thanks this morning, Lord, for this privilege of examining Your Word. And I pray that You would guide us through Your Holy Spirit and through Your Word that we might not only have understanding but by Your grace, be able to apply these truths to our own life. And we just give You thanks, and we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, we left off in verse 18, where the setting, once again, is the Apostle Paul writing from the prison in Rome. Now, by reading the essence of this book and realizing the joy that's coming from Paul as he pins this letter, you wouldn't think he was writing from prison. You wouldn't think that this man was incarcerated, suffering, and yet his heart was full of joy. And the reason for that joy was that even though he was in prison and those who were chiding him, even some of the believers, thinking somehow that his ministry of bringing forth the gospel was hindered, it was not. Because actually the gospel was being spread throughout the Praetorian Guard and in Caesar's palace. So those Philippians, in in their attitude, some had the attitude of jealousy and strife, thinking somehow that they were going to bring discouragement and add to Paul's problems. Can't understand that. 
And yet, somehow, these believers were proclaiming the gospel. The gospel was going forth, and people were getting saved. So Paul rejoiced in that. Whether they had the right motives or wrong motives, the gospel itself was going forth. So, in verse 18, where we left off, I'll just recap. Paul says, what then? Uh, rhetorical question. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Of course, what then is the rhetorical question, and he answers it. If the cause of Jesus Christ is being preached, even with wrong motives or pretense, his attackers whose motives were not uh, right, Christ was still, was still being exalted because the gospel was being proclaimed in Philippi. So Paul wasn't really at all disturbed by their wrong attitude. He was rejoicing in the fact that the gospel was going forth. So Christ was being preached, and Paul rejoiced in that. And when we say uh, in truth, uh, that is, there, it was being proclaimed not so much speaking of the clarity of the gospel or the correctness of the gospel when he says in truth, but that re- reflects the attitude. The purity of their attitude was that of proclaiming Christ to the lost for those believers that were had a sincere heart, but others with false motive. That is, those who were trying to cause some kind of uh, damage to Paul's reputation. In other words, here's the apostle being hindered because he's in jail, and many of them were accusing him of being in sin, and that's the causation for him being in prison. Of course, it was wrong. False charges were uh, brought against the apostle and he was in prison. But it didn't hinder the gospel. So his rejoicing was that of those that had a right attitude and whether they didn't have a right attitude, he still rejoiced because of the gospel going forth. And he continued to rejoice. Stop and think about this. His circumstances were dire. I mean, Roman prison was no place that one would want to be. And yet, Paul, being in prison there as an apostle, wasn't concerned about himself. He never mentions any of the ill effects that he may have suffered. There's nowhere in the epistle where he wants to bring reflection on his own suffering but yet he wants to exalt Christ. That's all his concern. That Christ and His name be exalted. As we think of this, in the essence of contemporary times, for us today as believers, we all have some form of suffering in some way at some point in our lives. And yet as Christians, that can be used for God's glory, 
Because as the unbelieving world looks upon a Christian, they're wanting to see flaws. They're wanting to see hypocrisy. And yet Paul demonstrated the purity of the Gospel by the grace of God by rejoicing for how God's name was being proclaimed. So in light of this, he was not concerned about the envy or strife. He would allow God to deal with that in their hearts. As Paul goes on in verse 19, if you would look at that with me, he says this, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or death, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's Paul's attitude. Verse 21 gives us a clear understanding of exactly what the apostle felt. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. His life meant nothing to him. Only that Christ would be exalted. Now, when he says, for I know, the word know there is aida. Now, it means to know something with certainty. There's all forms of, in the Greek, uh, for know and knowledge, gnosis, epinosis, all those essence of forms of knowing something. But here, it means to know something with certainty, with confidence, to really know that this is the true essence of truth. Paul was confident in this, he was convinced that his suffering, whether from believers or unbelievers, meant nothing. And as we consider the wording here, uh, he says, for I know, he was completely confident, that this will turn out for my deliverance. Now, deliverance, uh, there's some varying views by theologian as by theologians as to what the essence of this word is deliverance we get the word from uh soteria uh sotir which is also the word that theologians use for the doctrines of soteriology which is the doctrines of salvation and the word means to be saved or delivered. So as we think of this deliverance, what does that mean? Some thought that this maybe Paul was speaking of ultimately he was going to be delivered from sin and death because of his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that's true. That was ultimately the deliverance. Well, if that's so, then he was thinking of perhaps that would be through death. But verse 20 would discount that view because in verse 20, 
Paul says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything with all boldness. Even now, Christ will be exalted in my body either to by life or by death. So Paul here was not talking about being delivered from death through the gospel. Rather, he had hopes and expectations that Caesar would release him. Remember, he had already been judged and put in prison, waiting the verdict from the Caesar. So Paul wasn't sure. Were they going to execute him? He didn't think so. His hope and his expectation was that he was going to be released. Why was he looking forward to that? So he could continue on with his ministry of proclaiming the gospel. That's all he cared about. And yet, in the same context, Paul wasn't concerned for his life. He goes on. By the way, this same word uh, is the word that Job used in in deliverance. In Job 13.16, it's translated in the Septuagint, which is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament. In Job 13.16, Job says, this also will be my salvation. It's the same word that Paul uses over here in, in Philippians. So, He's talking about deliverance. But in the context of the Old Testament, uh, Job was saying, for my salvation. So Paul here was fully uh, understanding and trusting in God's sovereignty. Now, uh, those of you that read Spurgeon are familiar with some of the wording that he uses in his writings. But one of the things that Spurgeon said that really uh, impacted me was that he understood God's sovereignty. And he said, God's sovereignty is the pillow in which I lay my head. Spurgeon was completely uh, trusting and understanding of God's sovereignty in all things throughout all history. And so he put confidence. Yes? You said that in Job, it refers to salvation. No, I'm sorry, deliverance. You said that in Job, it says salvation. Yes, yes. Yes. Deliverance, right. Yeah. Yeah. Paul was, I mean, excuse me, Job was suffering not because God was punishing him, but he understood the greater purpose in his suffering was ultimately to point to God's sovereignty and the work that he wanted to do in and through Job to bring forth his glory. Yes, thank you. Now, Paul earlier, in when writing to the Romans in the book of Romans, which is about five years earlier before this epistle, he wrote this, God causes all things to work together for good 
for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Of course, that's Romans 8.28. Paul, again, in that text, was recognizing that God's sovereignty in his life worked things together for good. Now, a lot of people use that verse uh, almost as a cliché. But we must understand, when God causes things to work together for good, that shows also His sovereignty. It's showing how sovereign God is over our circumstances. As we consider Paul, his suffering, it didn't mean anything to him. Hold your place here, and you don't have to turn there with me, but I'm going to turn back to uh, 2 Corinthians. And I just want to read a couple of um, verses. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 33. And he says this, Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Now think of that. Uh, One short of the 40 lashes. Usually, that was a fatal beating. And yet, Paul says, I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times they had beaten Paul, almost to the point of death. Then he goes on to say, I was beaten with rods, I was stoned, I was stoned three times, and I was shipwrecked. And I spent a day and night in the depth. So Paul's suffering was throughout his entire ministry. He was not, you can't say he was accustomed to it, but he knew no matter what, whether he suffered or whether he went through perils, he didn't care. That wasn't his focus at all. How often can we be thrown off track just by some form of trial or tribulation? This can bring us to the focus we should have. Paul always brought his focus back on Jesus Christ. Today, in many of the, quote, contemporary churches, which I say that in a universal sense, not in the sense of the body of Christ, but many that proclaim another gospel, it's a man-centered gospel. The gospel should always be centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Not a man-centered gospel. So Paul had the essence of that understanding. Uh, Again, on the word deliverance, he was confident that Caesar was going to release him. But he didn't really know for certain but he had a confident expectation of that. And whether or not he was released and was able to continue his ministry, he knew that his circumstances would turn out for good, whether by life or by death. In death, of course, his salvation would be complete. 
and perfect it. And yet, how does he word this? He goes on to say, it will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? This is a little bit... uh, It's not a simple passage to look at and come to a summation of what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that God works through His sovereign plan and He works through the prayers of the saints as well. Somehow, God has desired the saints to intercede. There's always urging for prayer. We're to intercede for the saints. And Paul, of course, in Thessalonians, tells them to pray without ceasing. In other words, having an attitude of prayer. And here, Paul knew if he was going to be delivered, it was God working sovereignly through the prayers of the saints. The Philippians, for the most part, the believers in Philippi, loved Paul. That was one of the first uh, churches that Paul established. He had an intimate relationship with them. They provided for Paul when he was in need. They provided food. They provided resources. They loved Paul and they supported him sacrificially. And so Paul knew that their prayers God was using to cause his deliverance. Again, this deliverance would be the temporal deliverance of being released from prison. He couldn't wait to be released, not because he was worried about suffering, but mainly so he could continue his ministry of the proclamation of the gospel. Paul again trusted in God's sovereignty and also remembering James wrote this, the effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We sometimes uh, take lightly the essence of prayer. Oftentimes when we're talking with a brother, uh, women talking with sisters and brothers, we have a prayer request. Somebody will say, you know, I've got this situation, would you pray for me? We shouldn't take that lightly. It isn't that God's going to answer our prayers because sometimes we pray perhaps with wrong motives or we're praying for something that's more of a temporal, has more of a temporal effect than eternal. So what we want is God's will when we pray. And Paul did as well because he didn't care whether he continued there or whether Caesar decided to carry out capital punishment with him. It wasn't his concern. He trusted in the sovereignty, working through the prayers of the saints. And that's what he's expressing here. And he goes on to say, in the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, in the latter part of verse 19, the Spirit here is called the Spirit of Christ. It's... uh, somewhat of a, an expression of God's Spirit sent by Jesus Christ. Of course, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit 
one God and three persons. But Paul is recognizing here that God is sending the Spirit through Jesus Christ. So when he says provision of the Spirit, it's not just the provision of God's divine grace and salvation. He's talking about God's divine provision for grace in every circumstance and every work of God's providence in his life. We sometimes fall short of understanding that grace. That grace begins at salvation, but it continues throughout the believer's lifetime. We're dependent upon God daily for His grace through faith. And so here, Paul understood that. He wanted the saints, for, and he, he was basically petitioning them in a subtle way. He wants the saints at Philippi to intercede on his behalf. Not for his benefit, but so Christ would be exalted. He goes on uh, understanding that this provision is a complete essence of providing for all his needs. So when we think of that, we think of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul, in essence, wanted to express that love, joy, and peace, and gentleness meekness and self-control. He wanted that to be expressed through him, again, to point to Christ, even in his circumstance as he's in prison. So he was praying that God's Spirit would work through the saints, interceding for Paul, and that he would be able to appropriate the grace needed to do whatever God's will was for him. Also, uh, as we think in a parallel sense of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, when the Lord said, Do not worry about how or what you will say, for it will be given to you in that hour what you are to say. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. That's from Matthew ten nineteen and 20. Paul wanted God to be exalted, so he wanted God's Spirit to manifest through him in such a way that they would understand. This isn't just a man, one who was a frail being, he considered himself frail, one who they thought was some kind of a religious fanatic, but he wanted them to recognize that he was God's child. He wanted Christ working through him to be exalted. How often do we think of it in that perspective? When we think of uh, how God works providentially in our lives, do we understand the ultimate goal that God has for us of being exalted in us? He's taken us, those that are truly His children. He's delivered us from sin and brought us into the family of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. And even that is of Him. So when God does this work, He's separating us, leaving us in the world, but working through His children to point ultimately to Him. That's it. Paul wanted that expression to be uh, manifest through Him. And then he uh, continues by saying... 
according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. But with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. The idea of uh, Paul saying this earnest expectation and hope, it was grounded in the promises of Christ. His earnest expectation literally has the uh, meaning of stretching the neck. Well, I, it seems like an odd expression, but think of it this way. Paul was looking eagerly. Think about going to the airport to pick up a loved one you haven't seen for some period of time, and you are in a crowd there awaiting the passengers to come off the plane, and you're standing there and you're just stretching out, looking expectantly for your loved one. This, in a sense, will mirror what Paul was doing. Paul had an earnest expectation. He was looking forward to what God was going to do, and he was grounded. Paul understood something that's really key here. That is Christ's love for him. When we think of that love, Paul was anchored in that. He, as Job, understood his sufferings, his trials, his difficulties, and perils for his life at times were all sovereignly carried out in him. And this plan of God's providence was unfolding. And he trusted completely in God's love in that. When we think of anything that happens providentially, we must always focus on that is through the love of Christ. Everything is filtered through the Father as we look at our lives. So Paul understood this great love that God had for him, and he had great expectations. He had a complete hope and expectation. He was certain that God was going to perhaps open the door through Caesar and allow him to continue his ministry. <clears throat> Excuse me. This earnest expectation uh, translates an intense longing. In other words, Paul had this great intense longing to continue his ministry. And it's only used twice in the New Testament. Here and in Romans 8.19, where it describes the eager longing of creation awaits for the revelation of the sons of God. That's Romans 8.19-21. Where this earnest expectation and hope is linked together with the Christian expectation of what God's going to do through His sovereign plan. So, Paul understood God's purpose. He understood not necessarily what God's providence was, but he knew that God wanted to use him, and he wanted to exalt God, whether in life, whether he's going to be released and continue on his ministry, or whether the Caesar decided to take his life. So he continues, and he said, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. Remember in Romans 12, as 
some of you were in that study with me, uh, where Paul talked about in verse 1 of chapter 12, uh, being a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is his spiritual service of worship. He always considered what God was doing in his life as a service. Do we consider the same thing in our lives as a work of service? Recognizing that God wants to be working through us to bring exaltation to his name. Again, uh, he's always including whatever circumstances that God may have for him. He testified that the churches in Judea and throughout the region were glorifying God because of me. In other words, Paul's suffering and his trials and all that God was doing through him was bringing glory to God. Again, never mentioning himself. His, he has no concern about his personal life, whether he lives or dies. <clears throat> when he speaks, I will not be put to shame in anything, but with all boldness, Christ, even now, will be exalted in my body. Now, he wasn't boasting here. He wasn't bragging or bringing some kind of... A, uh, personal exaltation. Not at all. Rather, Paul here was pointing that the boldness that he had was first of all from Christ, and also Christ was using and working through the prayers of the saints in everything that was happening. He was pointing back to Christ. But Paul also had this courage that he could continue and he was not going to be ashamed. The word here, uh, ashamed, is, is differs from the English word. Like if the Webster describes ashamed, it would say painful emotion or excited by a conscience of guilt, disgrace, or dishonor. When you're humiliated or make some kind of a foolish mistake, you're ashamed in the English language. But this is different. But the biblical understanding of the shame has to do with disappointment. Paul did not want to be disappointed. He did not want to disappoint the saints. But most of all, he did not want to anyway disappoint his Lord and Savior. So Paul was not wanting to be disappointed. In... uh, Romans 5.5 5 in the NIV, it says, Hope maketh not ashamed. Paul was not uh, ashamed and he was not disappointed. We're never disappointed in the gospel. We're never ashamed of the gospel. We know the power of the gospel, which brings forth salvation. So Paul went on and he said, whether by life or death, if Paul's acquitted and he's released, he'll continue in his labor to spread the gospel. But in his, if he's condemned to death, he has an unwavering faith in Christ. And either way, 
it will become evident that the Lord Himself will be exalted. Then he goes on in verse 21. This is a verse that gives a summation of Paul's essence. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So Paul here brings forth the understanding that uh, his whole life and his whole essence is that of living for Christ. He knows that he is immersed in Christ, he's covered by Christ's righteousness, and he wanted to live for Christ. And then he says, to die is gain. So, physical death does what for the believer? It ushers him into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul, either way, and of course, to die is gain. Yes? Yes? Yes. Yes. No. Okay. Okay. Maybe I miscommunicated. Paul was not wanting the uh, essence of. He had no disappointment in the essence of what the gospel would do. So rather than when he says ashamed, that translates disappoint or disappointment. So in this very context, let's go back to it. Okay, in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything. Now I'm reading out of the New American Translation. But that with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, will be exalted. So, using the word uh, disappointment rather than shame, you can exchange it synonymous with shame in the New Testament form of the Greek. So here, Paul was saying, when he proclaimed the gospel, he would not be disappointed because God would cause through the gospel the transforming of those whom He called. So, oh, I'm, I may I may have misstated that or something. So I'm sorry, but thank you for bringing that out because I want that to be cleared up. Paul was not ashamed or disappointed in the gospel because he knew the ultimate effects that God would work through the gospel to not bring any disappointment. When God calls somebody with a fervent call, effectual call, He will draw all those that are His to Himself. So Paul, again, is pointing to Christ. For me to live as Christ, to die is gain, because ultimately He would be with Christ. I do not... Paul says this, and this is key. It comes from the book of Acts. When he was talking and departing with the elders, he was he said this, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly 
of the gospel of the grace of God. So Paul's whole life as an apostle, called out one, was that of bringing testimony to the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I just want to give you one quick quote here. Do I have time, Jim? Okay. Um, this is uh, from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this, We could go on giving examples from Scripture that the preaching of the gospel is essentially in preaching Christ. The message of the gospel is not a message of goodwill or an exhortation for people to live a better life. It is not an appeal for morality or an attempt to raise the moral of people or for a motivation for people to do more. This might be the result of the gospel, but the thing that confirms the truth is preaching Christ and the test of the message should be, is Christ at the center? Must understand what the gospel is. And I'll just briefly give you an oversight. There's examples in Acts 2.10 and 13 how the gospel was presented. First of all, it gave the facts and explained that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. He lived on this earth as God incarnate for 33 years. He had a public ministry beginning with John's baptism. He performed many miracles and told the message, brought forth the message of salvation. He also lived a perfect sinless life, suffered, was crucified, rose again, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. They said he was the Son of God, and his miracles and works prove it. They also quote from the Old Testament, which confirms the prophecy of Jesus Christ. They reasoned and proved throughout that he is the Christ, the Son of God. They explained that man has broken the law and is under the curse of death. Christ, being perfect, came to take our sins upon himself, to bring forgiveness by the bearing of sins of man on the cross. We now have the indwelling spirit that seals us unto adoption as the children of God. Yes? Acts 2, no, Acts 2, 10, Acts 2 and 10 and 13, the chapters. Right, I'm sorry. I appreciate you helping me clarify these things. That's okay. We have to understand what the gospel is, and this is the essence of the gospel. So when we proclaim the gospel, if it doesn't have in some way this understanding, of who Christ is and what He has done, then we're presenting a man-centered gospel rather than a Christ-centered. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank You, Lord, for Your Word. I thank You that You are sovereign in our lives to work that which is Your providential will. We pray now, Lord, that You would enable us to appropriate Your grace daily to honor and exalt You in our lives. We just give you thanks for your word, and we pray now that you would continue to be lifted up as we worship you in song and hymns, and as your word is brought 
forth in preaching through the Word of God. We just thank you and pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.